0: All right, guys, if you got your Bibles, one more time to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, the final chapter. It's kind of a long chapter. There's a lot packed in here, and uh, we will kind of dive into that and begin to look at uh, this final kind of a, a pure application section of the book where he has given us many different reasons that we are to follow Christ by grace and grace alone, and now he's going to come back and give us this final uh, bit of encouragement and say, this is really how you do it. Chapters 1 through 12 uh, tell us to cling to grace and not to go back to the law. Why would you go back to a law that imprisons you and, and, and leaves you empty when you've been brought into grace and it can fill your soul? He calls us to run the race, to look to Christ. And here in chapter 13, he's going to show us how we run that race with others, how we run that race to others, and how we run that race for others. And uh, so this chapter is going to help us to, to make application of all the, the things that he's been saying and kind of, kind of answer some questions for us. He's going to answer the question, what difference does grace really make? Is grace just something that we need to save us or is grace something that we need to sustain us? Is grace just, just present at, at the time of salvation or is grace something that God uses all the way through the sanctification process? If your mindset has been that, that I need grace so I can be saved, but I'm I'm pretty cool since then, then you're missing what grace is all about. Grace is not just about salvation. It's necessary for salvation and it's definitely a part of salvation, but grace is also something that continues to carry us forward, that helps us day to day. We need to walk in grace with God, but we also need to learn to walk in grace toward other people. And so what the author of of Hebrews is going to do in this final chapter is to leave no doubt that grace is meant to impact every area of our lives. From the moment that it captures our heart at salvation to the moment that we draw our last breath and we meet Jesus face to face. There's going to be several things that he's going to do here in this chapter. And let me just kind of give you an outline so you kind of get an idea of where we're going to go. He's going to talk to us in the the first verse about our relationship with other believers. He's going to come back and talk about our relationship that we are to have by grace, with grace towards strangers that that show up at our door. He's going to talk to us about our relationship with those in the body of Christ who are being oppressed, either those that are in prison or or those who are being uh, mistreated and persecuted. He's going to talk about how that grace changes my relationship with my sinful flesh. So watch what he does here. My relationship with believers, my relationship with those outside the church, my relationship with those that I've never yet met. And then he comes back and says, Oh, by the way, grace changes the way you deal with yourself and the way that you deal with your sinful flesh. And he's going to close uh, out this book with, with several other reminders, but, but he's going to call us to look back at those who introduced us to grace Look at the outcome of their faith, which is your faith. <laughs> your faith is the fruit of their faith. And then he's going to call you to go out and to share that with other people as well. So there's a lot packed into this, into this chapter, and I want to kind of jump into it and kind of guide you through it. And, and we'll just kind of walk through verse by verse through some of the things that he's going to say to us, because this is going to be where the rubber hits the road. This is why grace is so very, very important. So chapter 13, verse 1, he simply says, Let brotherly love continue. These guys are already loving each other. They're already in community with one another. They're already doing life together with each other. And he says, I want to make sure that you understand that grace is going to be the thing that helps you to continue that kind of love. Now you've got a love for your brothers and your sisters in Christ. It's why we serve one another. It's why we, we, we go the extra mile and we do things that, that other people in this world may not do. It's why when a family loses a loved one, the rest of the body gathers around and loves on them and helps them. It's why when somebody's facing surgery, the body of Christ prays on their behalf. It's why when somebody's going through a difficulty, a job loss and other things, believers step up and say, how can I help get you through this moment? It's that brotherly love that we share because we have a bond in Christ. The Bible says that when one part rejoices, the other part should rejoice with it. When one part suffers, the other part ought to suffer right alongside of it. And he's going to to show us how that that happens in this process. So he says, I want you to to be aware that you need to continue to love one another, but don't stop there. There's a second step in verse 2. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. You're like, oh my gosh, what does that mean? I just open up my house and let anybody come in? And he says, well, here's the deal. You need to open up your life to those outside your circle. Be open to those that you don't yet know. One person said a stranger is simply somebody, it's simply a friend that I've not yet met. You ever thought about that way? A stranger is just a friend that you haven't yet met. We talk a lot today with our kids about stranger danger. You know, you don't want your kids getting picked up by a stranger. And and we kind of start young teaching our kids to be afraid of strangers. And there's some value in that. You want your kids to be aware. But he's speaking to adults here and he's saying, guys, listen, you you need to set that aside and you need to realize that, that, that God's going to send people to your world that you haven't yet met yet. And he's going to bring people into your life. And don't you miss the opportunity to minister to them? He says, because some people have entertained angels unaware by doing so. I think about the story of Abraham when when he meets those strangers and those strangers bring a message from God and he realizes later that those were angels sent by God to communicate to him the will of God. How many times has God prompted our heart to help somebody that we don't yet know? You see somebody in need. You see somebody broke down the side of the road. You hear of somebody that's got a, a crisis or a need and you say, you know what, I want to go help. My friend Dennis that we just went and visited this past week it was a man that's been diagnosed with several uh, illnesses and has struggled. And yet, Dennis loaded up his truck in Indiana. And three times he pulled skid steers and tractor stuff and sent an 18 wheeler of food for us. He didn't know us. But he says, You know what? I want to be a part of that. And he drove all those miles. And I'm telling you, it was a lot of miles. Three different times to come down here and to serve us that's what the gospel looks like is that, that we don't need to neglect to show this this love and, and he says here this hospitality where we're opening up our homes and our lives to others and, and so we don't just come to church and form a clique we don't just come to church and say us four and no more we walk through the doors of the church and we scan the crowd and we say is there somebody here that i haven't yet met that I can open up my life to, that I can open up my world to, that I can invite to go to lunch with me, that I can begin a relationship with. And so we, we live our lives with our, with our eyes wide open and saying, Lord, who is it that you're bringing into my circle that I can love on and I can show Christian hospitality? So we love one another, and we do that well. But we need to look beyond the walls of the church and say, Lord, who is it at work? Who is it in, my, in, in, in all these different circles that I live in that, that I can bring people into my world? And, and the purpose of that is that we might share the gospel with them, that they might know Jesus. We stood yesterday at the graveside of Neil's dad, and we talked about other people who've done that. Friends from New Mexico that drove down here after Hurricane Laura. And Neil and many of us have been praying for Neil's dad for years, that he would just come to understand how much Jesus loved him. And these chainsaw crew from New Mexico drives all the way down here, cranks up a chainsaw, and begins to cut up trees on his dad's property. And while those guys are working, there are others that are sharing with Neil's dad about Jesus. And that day two years ago yesterday... Hurricane Laura blew through, God sent help, and those men led Neil's dad to the Lord. Don't you know that those were men who reached outside their circle of influence and said, let me bring you into my family, let me bring you the gospel. He says in verse 3, I want you to remember those who were in prison, we know, we've studied through the book of Hebrew, that there are those who are being persecuted for their faith, that the Jewish community had kind of turned their back on this brand new thing called Christianity, and they had shoved them outside of their homes and outside of their relationships. And, and these Christians really had nobody else to cling to but their brothers and sisters that they found in Christ. Many of them were arrested and thrown in prison because of their faith. They were mistreated because of the gospel. And he says to the church, I don't want you to forget those who've been taken from you and, and locked in prison. I don't want you to forget those who are being mistreated right now because they stand for Christ. He says, in fact, I want you to remember those who are in prison as if you were right there with them. Listen, listen to the impact of what he's trying to say. We don't have believers here today being thrown in prison because of their faith. But, but look at what he's saying. He says, if somebody stands up for their faith and it costs them everything... You ought to put yourself in their shoes and say, what would I want the body of Christ to do for me? Somebody in our church stands up at work and says, I'll not compromise my integrity. I I won't bend the rules in order to, to keep my job, but I'm going to do what God's called me to do. And I'm going to be the believer that God's called me to be. And it costs them their job. If that were you losing your job because you stood up for Christ, how would you want the body of Christ to respond? Because you see, many times we worry about what happens and what it will cost me if I do this. And he's saying, be the body to those people who have stood up and sacrificed everything. Maybe they're going to need some financial help. Maybe you're going to have to sacrifice to put food on their table. Maybe you're going to need to help them to find another job, to introduce them and help them connect with others so that they can support their family. Whatever it is they need, put yourself in their shoes as if you were right there with them. And ask yourself the question, how would I want the body of Christ to respond to me if I'd lost my job? or if I've been through what they're going through. So he starts with this this huddle, this holy huddle of brotherly love that's just between us, that's so rich and so deep. And he says, but open yourself up to those outside, and then don't remember those who have been taken away from you. Don't forget them, because you are one in the body of Christ. And then he turns, and he begins to talk about something much more personal. Personal. He begins to talk about our our relationship, not just with others, but my relationship with my sinful flesh. He says, if you're going to do these things, then you're going to have to battle that selfish, sinful flesh. He talks about it in two things that at first don't really seem to be connected, but I really think that they are. He talks about marriage and our most intimate relationships with our spouses and our family. And then he talks about this issue of greed and both of them are probably some of the strongest desires that we battle in our sinful flesh. We know that our sexual drives are one of the, the greatest, strongest drives of our lives. But so is this need to acquire more and this, this battle with greed. And so he ties these two things together. And he says this in, in verse 4. He says, let, them, let marriage be held in honor. Now here he's talking about the institution of a marriage, the, the design that God has created and, and, and spoken to us about what marriage is. He says, I want you to hold that in honor, this idea that God has created. And he says, one man and one woman together forever. That's God's design for marriage. And he says, I want you to honor that institution. I want you to honor that pattern. In, in our society, guys, it's been set aside. We're saying, well, cohabitation is not bad. No, well, it's sinful. And we've got to call it that. When we choose to live together without being married, that is not God's plan. And that is not God's design. Now, it's, it's, it's a sin, but so are so many other things. And, and, and so many times we pick out these things and want to make a, a huge deal out of them, but we need to take them serious. He says, I want you to have honor for the institution of marriage. And that means that we've got to do things the way that God's designed for it to be done. So he talks about the institution of marriage. But then he also talks about the intimacy of marriage. He says, and I want you to let the marriage bed be undefiled. I want you to keep that relationship that was started the way God wanted it to be started. And I want it to be maintained the way that God has called for it to be maintained. So he says, I want you to, 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 to honor the institution. And then I want you to honor the intimacy of that relationship. And then he gives us a warning. He says, for God will judge The sexually immoral. Those are the ones who set aside God's desire. Don't honor God's, God's commands. And also the adulterous. He said he will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterer. The one who says, I'm going to do it my way, not God's way. You're setting yourself up for judgment and for failure. Those who say, well, I'm married, but, but I'm going to go outside the bounds of marriage and I'm going to find some fulfillment and find some, some pleasure outside of that. And he says, there is judgment waiting on those. And then he says, keep your life free from the love of money. Here's the greed. And again, both of these things are two strong desires of our sinful flesh. He says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Look with me if you've got your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. And look what Paul says, something very, very similar. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of this world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And then here's a warning about greed. Those who desire to be rich fall first into temptation, second into a snare, and third into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many hangs. Here's what he's saying. Just like he's saying in the book of Hebrews is he I'm warning you against letting that desire control your life. Some folks are so anxious to be rich, so anxious to have it all. He's not saying here there's anything wrong with money. He's saying there's something wrong with us pursuing that as our ultimate goal. He says, don't, don't do that. Be content. Godliness. That's your character with contentment is great gain. He says, look at this. You, you brought nothing into this world. And when you leave, you're not taking anything with you. So everything that you're working so hard for, everything you're trying to accumulate, you can't take it with you. And he says, there's a real danger when we replace God with a lesser God. And, and here's the danger. We fall into temptation. We, we get caught in a snare. And we're plunged into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge us into this pit of ruin and destruction. How many stories have we heard of people who were chasing after money and the stuff of this world that just left them destroyed and empty? It's through this craving, he says, and this is the worst part, that many have wandered away From the faith. That's what the writer of Hebrews is warning against back in the book of Hebrews. But look with me in Matthew chapter six, real quick. Matthew six, verses nineteen through twenty-one. Jesus also warns us about this love of money. He says, "Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust and destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy." where thieves do not break in and steal and where, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Here's what he's saying. Make Jesus your greatest treasure. Make him be the thing that you pursue him. Be the thing that you, that you, you cannot live without let Jesus be that because where your treasure is there will your heart be also. Do you find it hard sometimes to treasure Jesus? Well, that's because we're treasuring something else. When we, when we focus our heart on Jesus, it ought to be our prayer as believers that, that God would break us out of this, this selfishness and this greed that so easily creeps its way in, and that we would allow the Lord to help us to live for that which is eternal, that which really, really matters. So he says here in Hebrews that we are called to, to keep our lives free, from the love of money, to learn to be content with what we have. And you say, how in the world do I do that? Well, he tells us in the next part of this verse, he says, for God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How can I be content? Because I have Christ. And if I've got Christ and I've got the Lord in my life, then I've got everything that I'm going to need because he will provide for every need that we have. I can chase stuff and miss Jesus, or I can chase Jesus and trust him to supply everything that I'm going to need. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. Literally, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Again, these Hebrew believers are, are facing persecution. They're, they're facing jail time. They're facing the loss of all that they have. And, and, the, and the writer here is saying to them, listen, I want you to remember something that's, that's been recorded for us in Scripture back in Psalm 118. It, it, it's, a, it's a great psalm. You've got to go back and look at it. But Psalm 118, there's a refrain that comes through it all throughout that psalm. And it says this, his steadfast love will endure forever. You can rest And you can be content with what you have. You know why? Because you have the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has come to you by grace, has adopted you into his family, has cleansed you of all your sin, and has promised you a place in eternity with him. You can be content with that. This world can't offer you any of that. And so he says, learn to to be content. Pursue him and this relationship with him. And remember when things get tough that the Lord is your helper. He is right there at your side. To see you through and to walk with you through all those things that may come your way. And then he turns in verse 7 and he says this. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God. Now I think he's talking about those who are the leaders in their past. Those who pointed them to Christ for salvation. He says, Remember those guys who who pointed you to Christ, who spoke the word of God to you. They are your spiritual role models. They are the ones that help point you to Christ and lead you to this point of salvation. I want you to consider their outcome, the outcome of the way of their life. Now, think about this. He's talking about the outcome of their life. That's the fruit of their life. What was the fruit of those who shared the gospel with you? You are. You're the fruit of their labor you're the fruit of their love you're the fruit of them sharing the gospel they shared the gospel God empowered them God empowered the gospel God drew you to himself and when you look at their lives and you go you know what the way that they did that the way that they loved the way that they shared it's why I'm here where I'm at right now consider the outcome of their way of life and then imitate their faith so here's what he's saying I want you to cons- to remember who these guys were. I want you to consider what they did and how it impacted your life. And then I want you to go out and I want you to do the same. I want you to imitate that kind of faith. We need to be reminded often of the sacrifice and the love that has come before us. That's made the gospel available to us. Many, many, many believers from the time of Christ forward have laid down their life that the gospel might continue that the gospel might flourish, that the gospel might be known. We need to remember their faith and and consider the outcome of that faith as the fact that you and I now have the gospel presented to us. And then we need to do what they did and to share the gospel that same way. Verse 8 and verse 9. He's going to come in here and he's going to tell us that that we need to beware of these different gospels that are out there and these different teachings that people are throwing around, especially in our day and time when when, when you can access so much stuff. It's not just what's going on in our little town of Vinton anymore, but it's what's going on all around the world and how easily that is accessible and how easy it is to, to be misled. Look what he says. I want you to imitate the faith. Of those who've come before who those who led you to christ those who spoke the word of god to you and then he says jesus is the same yesterday today and forever so do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods which have not benefited those who've devoted to those devoted to them Remember where we're at in the book of Hebrews? These guys are, are, are putting their faith in Christ and the Jews are calling them back to the sacrificial system, calling them back to the law, calling them back to the, the, the food customs of that day and all those kinds of things. And he's saying, listen, I want you to understand something, that the Jesus that saved you and the grace that met you in your sin, it has not changed. He says, there are some who will do anything to stand out in the crowd. There are some who will, who will do anything in order to get noticed. There were some who will say anything in order to gather a crowd around them. Beware of those folks. We live in a world today where it's nothing to run across somebody who has done so much to themselves and they're just screaming saying, notice me, notice me, notice me. And he's saying there are preachers that will do the same thing. They will come up with some bizarre teaching that nobody's ever heard and say, let me show you things in Scripture that have never, ever been seen before. Beware of that. You know why? The gospel does not change. If I present something to you that nobody else in the world has ever thought of or dreamed of, you need to beware of that. Because Jesus is not different now. He's not anything different. There's this real pressure people feel to be unique and to see or to find something in Scripture that no one has ever seen or found before. And it's it's dangerous. And what the writer of Hebrews is really trying to say here, I think, is this. He's trying to say, if you want to be unique, if you want to stand out in the crowd, if you want to have something worth listening to, run to the gospel run to the gospel. There is nothing more radical than the gospel. If you want to be unique and you want to stand out from the crowd, speak truth, speak the gospel. Because today, especially in our world, that's being muzzled and it's not being spread and it's not being shared. You want to have something that would would make people stand stand still in their tracks and go, "Ah, I've never thought about that before. Speak the truth of the gospel. He says here that we are to consider these leaders that spoke the word to us. The gospel that changed our lives will also change their lives. So consider them and and look at them and imitate them and do what they did so that the gospel can go out to other people as well. Don't fall, he says, for for teaching that's contrary to the gospel. It was the gospel that saved you, and it's the gospel that's going to save those that come behind us. There's no need to add to or to take away from the gospel. There's no need to modernize the gospel and make it a little bit easier to swallow. There's no need to try to make the gospel say something that it doesn't say. This one true gospel points to Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And by the way, Jesus doesn't need your help to be relevant. He's always relevant. He is timeless. Verses 10 through 14. He talks about some stuff that's hard for us to understand because we don't have a sacrificial system anymore, but, but he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent, these Old Testament priests, have no right to eat. The bodies of those animals, when they would sacrifice an animal, they would offer the meat, but all the entrails and all the insides and stuff, they would carry outside the camp and, and dispose of them and burn them outside the camp. They were considered to be desecrated, to considered to be unclean. And so what he's saying here is that the bodies of those animals whose blood was used in the sacrifices okay, are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify people through his own blood. He's drawing a a correlation here. He's saying when when the sacrifice was offered, the blood was carried in and it was sprinkled. And then they took all the, the, the unclean parts outside the camp and burned them. And he says, and they so declared Jesus to be unclean that they had to take him outside the city gates to the hill called Golgotha. And they killed him outside, declaring him to be unclean and unfit. But the difference was this, that Jesus sanctified us through his blood that was shed outside the city. In disgrace, in dishonor, he hung on a cross. He shed his blood that you and I might be saved So the priests would discard and dispose dispose, uh, these unclean portions outside the camp. And now they're trying to dispose uh, of Jesus outside the camp. The difference was that he was our sacrificial lamb. And through him, life has come to us. And he brought us to an altar that their sacrifices could never provide. They brought us to an altar that, that reminded us of our sinfulness and left us in despair Jesus brings us to an altar of grace and hope and forgiveness, an altar that those priests, apart from Jesus' sacrifice, could never, ever experience. The priests saw the cross as a place of shame. We see the cross as a place of salvation. Therefore, he says, let us go outside the camp. Verse 13. Let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. If it means in order for me to stand with Jesus that I'm going to be discarded by the rest of the world, then he says, let me stand alone with Jesus. If it means that I don't fit into the rest of the world and I'm considered by the world to be crazy or to be less than intelligent, then let me stand with Jesus. Let me go to him outside the camp, outside the city, and let me bear the reproach that he endured. For here, this earth, we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. So through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. He says, look, don't chase after money. Don't chase after the stuff of this world. Pursue Jesus. And if that takes you outside the mainstream, if that takes you outside the rest of the world, then live there and be happy there and be content there and thank God and praise God that you stand with a Savior who loved you enough to die in your place. That's the fruit of lips that acknowledge God's name. And then he comes back in verse 16 and he's going to say a couple things here that, that, That grace does he says now i want you to see that grace helps you not to neglect not to to miss the opportunity to do good and to share with others so i want you to not to neglect to do good and to share what you have with others for such sacrifices are pleasing to god what do these guys have that the rest of the world doesn't have grace They've experienced grace. They're living by grace. They're, they're, they're walking in grace. He says, and I want you to share that grace with the rest of the world. Because that kind of a sacrifice is pleasing to God. I want you to share the things that God's given to you. Some of the most generous people in this world are not the most wealthiest. Some of the most generous people are those who have nothing and yet find a way to give. They have little but they give great amounts. Thus the way that we are supposed to live. Verse 17, we're almost done. Look at this. Verse 17. He said, I want you to obey your leaders, and I want you to submit to them. So now he's talking about their current leaders. I want you to remember your your, your former leaders that pointed you to Jesus. Now I want you to obey your current leader and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So what he's trying to say here is God has placed us into a family. It's a family of faith, a family that's built on grace and, and, and mercy and love and forgiveness, and and God in that family has, has placed shepherds over the sheep, and God has called these shepherds to a role for which they will have to give an account. Let me say to those of you that are leaders in our church, those of you that are elders and deacons and interns and other ministers in our church, those of you that help to lead a Sunday school class, you have been given a great in, 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 in just an incredible opportunity, responsibility. But it's a responsibility that comes with accountability. And all of us as leaders in the body of Christ— are called not to take that lightly, but to take that seriously, and to work at that with all of our heart. And we have a responsibility. He says, our responsibility as leaders in the church are to keep watch over the souls of those that God has allowed us to minister to. It's a holy privilege, but it comes with an incredible responsibility. We are called to, 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 to serve in such a way that we, we watch over the souls of those who have been put under our care. Because one day we will stand before God and we will have to give an account for how we did in that role. So he says to, to the believers here, he says, listen, I want you to know that you're in a family, that God's put shepherds over us. These shepherds will be held accountable and, and they will be, they will be uh, accountable to God for how well they've served. But he also speaks to the sheep. And he says to those who are sheep, let your shepherds do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. He's saying to the sheep, you have a responsibility as well. And that is to make it a joy for others to lead you. Make it a joy for others to, to serve you. Make it a joy for others to, to, to share the gospel with you. And, and there's a million ways that we do that in our day-to-day life. It's, it's, it's letting those that are, that are over us see the progress. Let the others over us see the response, see the fruit, see the things that God's doing in you. Let them be a part of your world. So he's calling us to have these family relationships that are deep. And that are accountable to God. So he's saying the shepherd will be accountable, but also the sheep will be accountable. And he's saying that when we do it in a, in a way that, that robs of the joy, that becomes more of a struggle with groaning, that doesn't serve the body of Christ well. So we have a responsibility, and we've all been called to different roles We've all been called to different responsibilities. But this is where the body of Christ, which is made up of many members, works together in harmony to accomplish the the goal of the gospel, which is making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Guys, listen, God has called us to that. And for those of us in leadership, it's a huge responsibility. But for those who are called to be led, it's a huge responsibility as well. So he calls us to to these family relationships and says, Look, let this be done in a way that brings joy and brings fruit for the kingdom of God. Verses 18 and 19. This pastor who's written this letter to these people now asks them to pray for him. I want you to pray for us, he says. Notice this he doesn't say, Just pray for me. I believe the writer of Hebrews is, is a writer that is writing in community with other leaders. He's not the Lone Ranger. He's not saying, hey, just pray for me. He's saying, pray for us, this team of leaders that's, that's seeking your welfare. The whole reason he wrote this letter is to oversee their souls, to help them to stay on track, to stay connected to the gospel. And now he's saying this, I want you to pray for me. Pray for us. Pray for, for this team. For we are sure that we've got a clear conscience. We're sure that we desire to act honorably in all things, but I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. So he's undergoing some kind of persecution and he's being kept away from them. So he's written this letter to them and he's saying, I need you to pray for me. I, I right now, as far as I know, my, 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 my life is right with the Lord. My, my conscience is clear. But I am not above reproach. I am not above being tempted. I am not above falling. I think he's mindful of that scripture that says, take heed if you think you stand, lest you fall. Your leaders need your prayer. They need for you to lift them up daily and to pray for them. I know I do. I need for you to go before the Lord on my behalf and to pray for God to to help me to hear from him to protect me from the same temptations that you and everyone else face and to live a life with a clear conscience and this desire to act honorable in all things. And so he asked them to pray for him. And then he says, this is what I'm praying for you. This is his prayer over the church. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, Jesus, who is the great shepherd of the sheep, May this God of peace, by the blood of the eternal covenant, this new covenant of grace, may God equip you with everything good so that you may do his will. He's saying, you know what my prayer is for you? Not to get rich, not to be famous, but that God will give you everything you need so that you can do his will, that God will work in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So look what he's saying. God has graced us and he's called us now to be in this relationship, to to love one another in the body with a deep, deep love. The only way we can do that guys is to be involved in each other's worlds. We we will never develop a deep, deep love for one another. If all we do is come together on Sunday, sit in a chair, listen to a messaging and go out of here we will develop a deep love as we do life together. But that doesn't need to be just limited to us. It always needs to be looking outward to those strangers, those friends that we haven't met yet, and inviting them to come into our world and be a part of that. We need to do so by, 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 by working to battle the flesh within us, the flesh which would drive us into areas of immorality and things that will shipwreck our faith and draw us away from Christ. We need to do that. And, 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 and I'll be honest with you, the best way to do that is have friends in your life that know you inside and out, that understand your strengths and your weaknesses and love you anyway and say to you, you know what? I'm, I'm going to do battle for you and for your soul. I'm going to pray for you and for your strength and for your growth. And I'm going to pray that the God of all peace, who went as far as to send his son to die on a cross, to shed his blood, that he will equip you with everything good that you need in order that you can do his will And you can do that which is pleasing in his sight. And then he closes out his letter by reminding them of his desire to be with them. Look what he says. I appeal to you, brothers. Bear with these words of exhortation, for I have written you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released. Listen to that. What does that tell you about Timothy? He's just been in prison. But God just set him free. Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. So greet all your leaders and all the saints and those who who, uh, come from Italy, send you greetings and grace be with you all. The writer of Hebrews realized that he didn't serve God in a vacuum. He was not an island standing by himself, but he was connected with all of these. When you read through the New Testament, begin to look at, and I know this is sometimes a challenge we read through all these names that they list, especially at the end of Paul's letters. Paul always lists a, 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 just a truckload of names of people. And so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so sends you greetings. You may not know the names. You may not know their stories. But I want you to gather something about this. Paul never did life in isolation. He always had people with him. Wherever he went, there were those with him. If he was locked up in prison, there were those outside the prison that were ministering to him and bringing him food and helping him through. There were those that would take the letters that he was writing and deliver them to the churches that he was writing to. He always worked in connection with other people. God has not called us to be alone in this walk. He has called us to this family of grace. He has placed us in a family, and every one of us ought to feel a part of that family. So if you don't feel a part of that family, if you don't yet have a place where you belong and where you think this is a place where I can serve Christ and I can walk with him and I can serve him, then you need a family. You need a church family that you can do the gospel with. That's why we gather together on Sundays. You can pick up your Bible during the week and God can speak to your hearts, but we gather together on Sundays because we need one another and we need to be in relationship with others. That's how the gospel of grace is carried out, through a community of grace. And that's what God's called us to, to, to build and to be a part of and to strive to protect. And so I just say to you, the book of Hebrews is all about grace from cover to cover. That letter is about God's grace. He starts it with grace. He ends it with grace and he models what grace looks like all the way through and why we need it in our lives. So I would say to you today, as we close, are you loving the family the way you ought to? Have you met others in this family? And are you learning their names? Are you learning their stories? Are you learning about their lives? And are you praying for them? Then are you entertaining strangers? Are you taking those that are still outside your sphere and saying, Let me invite you in to my sphere of influence? And are you battling your flesh? Keeping it at bay? so that you can live honorably and pure before the body and before the Lord, knowing that one day you're going to give an account for the way that you have lived your life. This is what God's called us to. This is what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus' disciples walked with Jesus. He saw their good, their bad, their mistakes, their victories, and he just kept on loving them and kept on shaping them. And that's what we're called to do as a body of Christ. Let me close with a commercial for next week. The book of the Song of Solomon. When you read it, on face value, you're going to say, wow, this is a story about a man who loved a woman and a lone one who loved a man. And he was enthralled with her body. It's pretty graphic. That's not the whole story of the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is a story about a king who pursued for himself a bride and would let nothing, nothing interfere with that pursuit. It's a story told through the love story of a man and a woman about God's pursuit of us. My prayer as we go through the Song of Solomon is this, that your heart will be captured by God ignited, that you will feel for God something that you've never, ever even felt for your spouse, that there is this this thing of, oh my gosh, the king came after me and he pursued me and he brought me into his chamber and he made me his bride and he cherishes everything about me. Because here's what happens until that spark is ignited in our hearts, discipleship will never really occur. But the moment he captures your heart and you realize what he went through to come get you, the moment that happens, there there is nothing that can keep you from running after him and chasing after him. Discipleship starts in the heart, and the heart's got to be ignited and engaged. And once it is, then we can talk about discipleship. And that's what we're going to focus on for the next several months. So come back, take this week, read through the Song of Solomon, just a few chapters. It won't take you 30 minutes to read it. Read through it. Get a feel for where it's going in the flow. And it's kind of confusing because it kind of jumps a little bit. But, but just read it and get familiar with the verses. And we'll start in chapter 1, verse 1 next week. And we'll begin to walk through this book together. And you will see what your Savior did. And how he views you, how he sees you, and how he wants that relationship with you. And I tell you what, I, my prayer is it's literally that your heart gets ignited. That you lay in bed at night thinking about how much you are desired by God. And if you can grab that, it will, it will change everything about you. All right, enough for next week. I'll save the rest of it. Let's pray together. We're going to sing together. And, uh, and then, guys, we're going to serve together. We're going to serve the Lord as we walk out these doors today. My prayer says, hang, hang out for a minute afterwards. Go find a face that you don't know yet. Or maybe somebody you've already met three times and you can't remember their name. And just be honest like I do and say, okay, help me out. Tell me your name again because that's what it's going to take for us to get to know each other right okay let's let's do that let's pray